Good morning, New Life Church, and to all of our friends who are joining us online for our worship service on this Lord's Day, on a Friday here in the Gulf region. We are glad that you have joined us. And if you have been following our sermon series through the book of Judges, I would like to just remind you we have put all of these messages onto our website. And if you would like to read them again or even listen to them again, but even study the portions of Scripture together with your families or personally or individually, we have left um, some study guides there for you as well as some discussion questions that can help you understand perfectly and even more the, the, the portion of Scripture that we have been teaching. There's a lot that we're covering. Even today we are covering two chapters and um, we cannot read every single verse, so we would encourage you to do your own personal um, study during this time and read the passage even beforehand or after and do these studies. They really would go um, be a benefit for everybody who's doing them. Today we are looking at Judges chapter 10, um, 11, and the beginning of chapter 12, and it is the story of Jephthah. And the title of my message this morning is The Broken Savior. Uh, so we'll be looking from verse 6 in chapter 10 all the way to verse 7 in chapter 12. So I'm going to ask the Lord's blessings upon us and pray before we jump into the word this morning. Father, we do want to thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you, Lord, for your word. And I do pray, Lord, that the meditation of our, of our hearts and the words of our lips would be pleasing in your sight this morning. Please, Spirit of God, teach us and help us to honor you in, in word and deed. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen. So because we have so much to look at this morning, we're going to jump right into the study of God's word. And my first point this morning is Israel's repentance and God's mercy. Israel's repentance and God's mercy. We're just looking at verse 6, which will be on your screen. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve Him. The first sentence of verse 6 really sums it all up. Israel once again did evil in God's sight. Unfortunately, these are familiar words to the, to the reader. If you are counting... Seven gods are listed in this portion of Scripture. And the effect of listing these gods is to emphasize just how bad things have gotten in Israel. And this explains the severity of Israel's judgment and, and God's reluctance to come rushing to their aid once again. And secondly, we, we are told that the Israelites are sold or, or given into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites. Now, the Philistines are to be found on the, the western side of Israel, while the Ammonites are on the eastern side of the Jordan. In, in chapter 13 to uh, chapter 16, Samson will be Israel's deliverer from the Philistines, while uh, Jephthah will be Israel's deliverer from the, the Ammonites here in chapter 11 and 12. But the Ammonites are approaching Israel, and their intentions are far from friendly. And what is Israel to do? What is Israel going to do? Well, for 18 years, the Israelites had 
suffered under the, the hands of the Ammonites. And it finally seems to have occurred to them that their Canaanite gods that they were worshiping were actually doing them no favors, were doing them no good. And so they, they cried out to God, confessing that they had sinned against Him and assuring Him that they had forsaken their worship of these Baals. But the Lord is not impressed with their repentance because he had seen it before and it didn't last. He reminded the Israelites of all the, the nations from which they had been delivered from, only to be forgotten and forsaken when their suffering ended. And so God threatens to leave them to their gods in whom they have trusted. But let's pause here for a moment and, and understand what's being taught here in this passage. Well, look at the verse 10, which records their repentance. It says, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. Notice there, they, they rejected God and then they replaced God. Two things are happening there. And they are acknowledging this. They rejected God and then they replaced him. The sin is twofold. And we see this pattern in the scriptures. We see this being explained in Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 13. The Lord says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. I think this is the clearest description of the path of sin, the path that sin takes. Now, first comes the rejection of God, then comes the replacing of God. And just as this verse describes, once you reject God, you, you look to other things to, to worship, and you look to other things to, to find you joy, and you look to other things that you can adore, and other things that you can love. And you dig, and you dig, and you dig wells, and you dig deeper and deeper. And you think, well, there's, there's got to be water. There's got to be something there. And you, you commit to it, and you dig, and you dig. But it's the wrong well, as Jeremiah says. It's the wrong well. You're putting all your effort into the wrong well. And life becomes about desperately digging cisterns. Desperately digging these wells. And maybe you think, well, this new relationship will bring me joy. Maybe you think, well, maybe this, this, this achievement will bring me happiness. Or maybe this level of, of income will, will get me the satisfaction that I need. Or maybe this new car will bring me joy. And so you dig and you dig in all the wrong places. When you look to them instead of God for, for power and, and joy and significance, these idols that you are worshipping start to enslave you. These idols that you are investing into start to enslave you. Remember, an idol in the Bible is not just a statue. We've seen many of those in India. And if you just turn on the TV or you look up Google India, you'll see 
a nation filled with 333 million gods. And most of them are statues carved by people. But an idol in the Bible is not like that. An idol is, is not just a statue which you bow down to. An idol is whatever you turn to for joy, whatever you turn to for power, whatever you turn to for significance that is apart from God. In other words, anything that comes before God is an idol, according to the, the Scriptures. And the Israelites knew full well that these idols that they were worshipping, these pagan deities, could not deliver them and would not deliver them. We see this over again in the Bible, biblical terminology. Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is from the Lord only, not from other things. But still these, these Israelites persist in their appeal for, for God's deliverance. And, and finally God responds. Not so much because of their repentance. We, we'll see just now that their repentance was was really superficial and, and hollow. But because he could bear their suffering no longer, God was merciful. God's mercy really is the basis here for, for Israel's salvation. Look at verse 11. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, You have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore I will save you no more. And then verse 14. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. For the first time in Judges, God says no to the Israelites. They cry out. God says no. Why? Well, it's one thing for the wayward prodigal to, to come home in repentance. God will always receive someone like that. But imagine a wife who continually, who is unfaithful, but yet she comes to her husband and she says she's sorry, and she continues to be in these affairs, using her husband's security and using her husband's money so that um, she can live on, so that she can continue these affairs. That's something what Israel was doing. And these people don't want, want God for who He is. They are just in pain and they want somebody, they want anybody to make it stop, to change their circumstances. And here in this portion of Scripture, there's been no change of heart toward God. There, there, this is a, a, let me use you to get out of trouble. It's like in Monopoly when you get that get out of jail card. You keep it until you in jail, you use it. And that's what the Israelites were doing here with God. And I think it's, it's very possible, even for Christians, for us to approach God in an idolatrous way, thinking that we can use Him to benefit us. And we have to evaluate. I think all of us do, at every point of our Christian walk with the Lord. So are we using God? Or are we worshipping God? I remember in India, many of the the unbelievers would call Christians rice Christians. And they would use that to, to insult Christians by calling them rice Christians. And there was a connotation connected to it. Because the early missionaries would, would come 
and they would have these bags of rice in their, in their churches, and they would give rice to every person who, who came to church. And of course, the people in the village would come to church so they could get the, the free rice. They weren't really interested in, in what God, or, or, or about the God who they were preaching about, or the, the God of the Bible. They were interested in the free rice. And many people converted in a, in a false way so that they could get this, the, the, this rice. And they were using the church. They were using the church to get their own gain. Unfortunately, I think sometimes we do that. We use God for our own purposes. Or we think that we can. And the faith is not there. The trust is not there. Are you using God or are we, we worshiping God? What happens when, when you get into a difficult situation? What happens when, when, you, when you get scared? The first thing we do is, is we call out on God, isn't it? We call out to God for help. And then the danger passes. And what happens to those people who call out on God and when danger doesn't pass and they run away from God, they go somewhere else? What about those people who used to be in church and when something bad happened to them and God never gave them what they wanted or never delivered them from their situation, they leave church. What happened to those people? Well, those people never had the faith to begin with. Those people never had the faith to begin with. Their, their worship wasn't genuine. They were worshiping an idol. They had created God in their, in their own image. And they wanted God to give this God, this image, this idol, to give them what they wanted. They were using God, just like the Israelites here. Look at verse 15. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. But I think finally, after a long time, the Israelites get it. And see how different what they said in verse 15 is from what they, they said in verse 10. In verse 10, they said, we want peace from you. We, we don't want this judgment anymore, God. We want peace from you. But here in verse 15, they say, we want peace with you. We want peace with you. Even if the troubles continue, even if you, you don't answer our prayers, we want peace with you. We'd rather not have trouble, of course. I think everybody would say that. But having you is the most important part. And that's true repentance. That's biblical repentance. I don't, uh, it doesn't matter if life, if life is easy. It doesn't matter if, if life is hard. Lord, I just want you. And some people talk as if when you come to Christ... Life gets easier. And that's why I hate the prosperity gospel so much. It's a false gospel. It's an idolatrous message that preaches an idolatrous God. It's not of the Bible. Becoming a Christian won't make your life healthy, wealthy, or prosperous. Life doesn't get easier when you become a Christian. Your life doesn't become awesome when you become a Christian. Your boss may not give you a raise when you become a Christian. You may not discover the, the oil under your house when you become a Christian. That's not always 
or, or even usually the case. We see these Israelites coming to the Lord in a genuine way. Verse 16, it tells us, And the Lord became impatient over the misery of Israel. The Lord became impatient over the misery of Israel. I love that phrase. It, it shows you how God feels about His people. The Lord hurts with His people. He hurts with them. And He says, enough is enough. We see here Jehovah rising to his feet. It leads to my second point. Jephthah. We're now introduced to the deliverer, Jephthah. A man who's rejected by men, but he is chosen by God. In chapter 11, verse 1, it says, Now Jephthah was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead, Jephthah's father, had Many other sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of a prostitute. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. Worthless fellows collected around him and went out with him. So at this point... Jephthah enters the story as he is the deliverer that, that God is raising up to rescue the Israelites from the cruel oppression from the Ammonites. And the scriptures tell us he was a, a brave and, and a powerful warrior, but, but he, like Abimelech before him, had less than a, an impeccable pedigree. His father was Gilead, but his mother was a prostitute. And unlike Abimelech, who did away with his brothers, who killed his brothers, Jephthah, instead, he was driven out by his brothers, those who were the legitimate sons of Gilead. And over time, a, a group of unsavory men, they gather around Jephthah, and it seems as though they, they start to follow him, and they become engaged in some kind of of military exercises. And it seems that it was these military ventures that proved Jephthah to be a mighty man of valor. We don't know all the information about that, but it seems people recognized him as a brave military man. And the people come to him. Even the people who didn't want anything to do with him in the beginning. Even the people who didn't want to share in their inheritance. But now the Ammonites were about to wage war against the, the Israelites. And the Israelites need help. And they come to Jephthah asking for his help as their military commander. Look at verse 4. But after a time, the Ammonites made war against Jephthah. Sorry. But after... A time the Ammonites made war against Israel. Verse 5, And so the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah back and said, Come and be our leader that we might fight against the Ammonites. In verse 7, But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? You cannot here fault Jephthah for, for being skeptical at this point. 
And the Israelites invite him to return and to lead the nation in battle. But, but he's, he's not completely convinced. And why should he be interested in delivering those who had, who had driven him from his own home? Could these people be trusted? Would they, would they use him as much and as long as they, they could and then just throw him away like a, like a dirty rag? Well, the leaders of Gilead assure Jephthah that they would make him their leader and that he would be remembered as Israel's deliverer for, for a very long time. And eventually Jephthah agrees to return and lead the nation in battle. At first, he tries diplomacy with these Ammonites. And he says to the, the king of the Ammonites, why are you attacking us? And the king of the, the Ammonites says, well, because you took my land. And then Jephthah responds to him with, with three points of, of reasoning, which, which are very good points. And firstly, he says, well, it was actually the, Amali the Amorites' land that we took. It wasn't your land. Your name was, was never on the, the title deed, so, so get off your high horse. <laughs> and then he says, number two, we were, we were simply responding to your aggression against us as we passed through the land. You attacked us. Because we, we kicked your tail and we kept your land, God is the one who's given to us anyway. And then he says, thirdly, if this land is, is really a gift from your God, Shemosh, then why don't you ask him for this land? Why don't you use his power to come over here and to take the land from us? And we know what happens in the scriptures there. They say, fine, we're coming. And off they go to this battle. My third point we see in chapter 11, verse 29 to verse 40. Jephthah makes a vow to the Lord. And we see this war that starts with the, the Ammonites. And Jephthah makes a vow that we see that he regrets. But look at verse 30, chapter 11, verse 30. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Please underline that in your Bibles. That's an important phrase. I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Verse 32. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. So we see him winning this, this war. And God blesses Jephthah and his, his efforts. But then look at verse 34. Verse 34 to verse 39. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah. And behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let the thing be done for me. Leave me alone. Two months that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity. 
I and my companions. So he said, go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel. I think sometimes commentators, they they try to soften this. And they say, well, Jephthah must have expected an animal to to come out at first. But animals wouldn't necessarily have been kept in the house, so that wouldn't make sense. And the word meat here that that is used in verse 31, it's talking about human um, encounters, not not animal encounters. And Jephthah, I, I believe that he was thinking about a human sacrifice here. And some of the commentators that, that disagree with my interpretation, they, they say that Jephthah didn't actually kill his daughter. He didn't sacrifice her. He just, and the word sacrifice just means that, that she had to stay unmarried uh, for the rest of her life. I, I don't think that's what the Bible is saying here. If that's true, then he didn't do according to his vow. And his vow according to verse 31, was a sacrifice of a, of a burnt offering. He couldn't have just put her away. He had to have burnt this, this person who came to meet him. He had to do this human sacrifice. And I, I really am convinced that he intended to do this. And he carried out this sacrifice, this human sacrifice. He just expected, I think, the first person to come out of the house to be one of his many servants. And he had many servants. I don't think he expected his daughter to come. But a couple of questions, I think, come to our mind at this time. And I hope you're troubled by this because this is a difficult truth, isn't it? Difficult to understand. First, why did Jephthah make this vow? I think two reasons are, Explain to us. Well, number one, this is how the pagan gods were pleased. The pagan gods demanded human sacrifices. And you offered sacrifices to gain their favor. And the greater the sacrifice, the, the greater favor you could earn from your God. And God never, ever puts this out as a requirement to get his attention or, or favor. In fact, he, he forbids it. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 10, the scriptures tell us, There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. Ah, but you may say, what about Abraham? What about Abraham? Well, that never happened. That was a test. That was a test of faith. It was a test of his obedience. And this, this here is an attempt by Jephthah to pay off God, to negotiate with him. This is totally different. And people say doctrine doesn't matter. I want you to see how terrible that lie is. People just say, well, let's just love each other and forget about the doctrines of the Bible. Well, see the problem with that. Jephthah's understanding of of God and and of God's character made him make a, 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 a sinful vow made him make a terrible decision 
that led to terrible consequences. And Jephthah didn't know it, but he was more shaped by the, the pagan culture around him than he was by the, the word of God. And it cost his daughter and 42,000 Israelites their lives. We need to know our Bibles, folks. Not knowing our Bible, not being in a, in a, in a home group, has effects, often devastating effects. Not reading our Bibles, not studying them. Not just for you and, and for your children, but everyone whose lives they, they will touch. I remember speaking to a missionary in India who had gone into an, an area where they wanted to plant a church. He went to meet a man who they were told was a Christian, the only Christian in this village. And this man told a terrible story of how he lost his son. One year there was a terrible drought amongst this village in this area. And all the, the leaders came together. And this God man told them that in order for the drought to be taken away, there had to be a human sacrifice made. Now we're talking 20 years ago, folks. This happened 20 years ago, not 2,000 years ago or 3,000 years ago. There has to be a human sacrifice that is made. And of course, nobody wanted to sacrifice any of their, their children. So they drew, they drew straws, which is the, the shortest straw in a, in a stack. And this man drew the straw. And he had to sacrifice his son. His son was nine years old. During the night while his son was sleeping, he cut his son's throat. And he collected the blood. And he poured it on the, the roof of his, of his hut to appease the gods. To appease the gods. And of course, eventually, the police came to find out about this. And he was taken to jail. And in jail, he found a Bible, a small little Gideon Bible. And he started to read this Bible. And he started to wonder about the God of this Bible. And he had questions, and people knew he had questions. And eventually, he was released. But this missionary went to him and shared this gospel, told him what the truth of the Bible was all about, about the God who didn't want human sacrifices. The God who sent his son to be the sacrifice for our sins. The God who would take away all of our sin, the curse of sin. And this dear man wept. And he wept. And he said to this missionary, why couldn't you have been here 15 years ago? Why couldn't you have been here when I, before I killed my child? Not knowing our Bibles, folks, is a terrible terrible thing. Not knowing the God of the Bible leads to terrible consequences. Doctrine matters. Truth matters. It affects our decisions. It affects our families. It affects our lives. And I also think another reason Jephthah made this vow is because he was, he was desensitized to violence. He was a violent man who who used to surround himself with violent people. This was just the way that they did things. Human life was cheap. And the only way to dominate people was through violence. And for us, this seems terrible. And that 
just because violence is no longer something we do today doesn't mean that it wasn't an idol they worshipped then. Now, before you and I shake our, our heads in bewilderment, you know, we, we commit similar excesses. We are guilty of, of similar things that are sinful. For example, you know, a woman can tear apart her family and, and devastate her kids because she finally thinks that she's married the wrong person and she needs to find true love. And so she leaves her family to be with another person. And people say, well, she's just being true to herself. Well, that's not truth, folks. That's a lie from the devil. Let, let me talk about this a little more. And I think our Western culture idolizes romance and, and sexual fulfillment. Even to the point that, that anything you can sacrifice for, it is okay. So long as it, it makes you feel good. For example, I think there are people who change their, their sex and think that the world would embrace that because that's the way they want to live. He's just being true to himself. Well, there's a price to pay, folks, for believing those type of lies. I mean, those type of people will end up on, on the Ellen show, or they will end up on, on the Oprah show, and the world will think that they are wonderful, and that will be pushed in our faces. But what about those people that have just devastated their, their whole family because they thought that was insignificant. Their families are insignificant. We are our idol. We are our idol. This is idolatry. And people end up calling it love. And on the other hand, a man can neglect his family and neglect his wife and neglect his kids in, in order to get ahead with his career. And people will say, well, that's, that's just what it takes to survive. You'll never succeed in the, the finance world unless you work till every hour of the night and every, every day of the week. What about even in our culture, someone who, who gets pregnant at an inconvenient time? And so what do they do? They murder the child. They eliminate the child in an abortion. And the world says, well, only you have the right to determine what shape your life will take. And if having a child right now will mess up your life, well, well, that's okay. As long as it makes you happy. See the excesses that, that we embrace. And we, we shudder at the, the violence that, that took place here with Jephthah. But what about the, the violence that we so easily embrace? The idols that we so easily worship? We should realize that we're probably not as advanced as a, as a people as, as we like to think that we are. Why did Jephthah keep his vow? Well, maybe you can excuse him for, in his zeal, saying something stupid. But, but after he saw it was his daughter, now for two months he sat there and considered it, and then he continued with it. Why did he do that? Well, I think he kept it for the same reason that, that he made the vow. I don't think Jephthah understood the grace of God. 
His doctrine failed him. His understanding of the, the word of God failed him. He felt like he had to earn God's favor the way you, you earn a, a pagan God's favor by making sacrifices, by paying them a fee. And now he feels like if he doesn't keep his terrible vow, God is going to punish him. But God doesn't give victory or favor or salvation because we, we earn it. Not by works. The Bible is clear about that. We are not saved by our works. We are saved by faith in Christ alone. He does the saving. He bore in his own body the price for our peace. Scripture says by his stripes we are healed. Should Jephthah have kept his vow? I don't think so at all. He should have said, God, you never said you'd give me victory only if I sacrificed something. No, no, you, you give your people victory as a, as a gift of grace. So instead of fulfilling this wicked vow in which I thought I could purchase your grace, I repent of it. I repent of making it in the first place. I repent of thinking that there was something that I could do to earn your favor and receive your grace. Grace is a gift. And this is the gospel, isn't it? This is the gospel, sadly, that Jephthah didn't understand. You never have to make promises or sacrifices to God to earn his favor. That's not how we get salvation. Or you sit here and make vows to God. I will never do this again. I'll never do that again. If you just give me this, if you give me that. There's only one way to please God. Only one way, the Bible tells us, and that is by faith. By faith. Faith in His grace, in His loving kindness. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, I've already mentioned it. For by grace we are saved through faith, and then not of ourselves, lest we boast. It is a gift of God. We don't have to negotiate with God. There's only one deal God will make that is His righteousness. For our absolute surrender. His righteousness for our surrender. As tragic as this story is already, Jephthah's family troubles are, are just the beginning. My fourth point and my last point is chapter 12, verse 1 to 7. We see Jephthah, Israel, and the Ephraimites' ego. Now, once again, we find the Ephraimites talking big after the battle is, is won and suffering from, from wounded pride because they, they wanted greater victory. Look at um, verse 1. The men of Ephraim, his own countrymen, were, were called to arms. And they crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. Remember, Jephthah had tried diplomacy with the Ammonites, but he's not doing that here. He's doing something completely different. He immediately calls his men to, to arms. Look at verse 4. Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. Verse 5. And the Gilead, Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, 
Let me go over. The men of Gilead said to him, Are you an Ephraimite? When he said no, they said to him, Then say Shibboleth. And he said Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. Well, obviously, different parts of the, the country spoke with, with different accents. Living here in the UAE, uh, we, we have so many people from different countries with different accents. We can understand this. Some people struggle to pronounce different words. And people from Ephraim couldn't make the, the sh sound that they, that they should have. And instead of saying Shibboleth, they said Sibboleth. And that was a sign that they were from Ephraim. Well, when the person said it wrong, verse 6 shows us, then they seized him and slaughtered him there at the Jordan River. At that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. Jephthah killed 42,000 of his fellow countrymen. Verse 7, and Jephthah judged Israel six years, only six years. They had been oppressed for, for 18. And this is the first time in Judges the, the deliverance is shorter than the oppression. And then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in his city in Gilead. That's the end of the story. Let me just give you three lessons as we finish here this morning. Three lessons to conclude. Number one, our idolatry has devastating effects on those around us. Please hear me carefully this morning. Jephthah's lack of understanding of Scripture led to a weak faith led to a, a wrong faith, led to a corrupt faith that killed his daughter and killed others. Our idolatry, folks, affects our children. The idolatries we cherish have effects devastating, even worse than on Jephth than Jephthah's. You know, here's a statistic I read that one in every three children grow up in single-parent homes today. And, and that's not because one of their parents have died. It's because their parents never got married in the first place or they're illegitimate. And most are because one of the parents decided that their idols, their desires were more important than their children. It was more important than what was best for the family. And abortions, our appetite even for Worldly things, pornography, has created a sex industry. And in some of the statistics, they are appalling. There's, a, there's an average age. The, the average age of a girl who enters the, um, the, the flesh trade is 13 years old. So many children and teenagers being diagnosed with anorexia or, or bulimia because they're worshiping the idol of of what the, the television tells us we are to worship. The idol of, of a perfect figure. The idol of fashion. The idol of romance. We are not as sophisticated as we think. We should be zealous for God to work in us. And for Him to work through you. We need to ask God to help us see these idolatrous blind spots. We need to know the Word of God if we are going to see those blind spots, folks. A dove is not going to land on our head and give us this, this supernatural understanding of the Scriptures. We need to work hard at it.
We need to read our Bibles. We need to study our Bibles. These blind spots are going to end up burning those in our households, those around us. Secondly, God's grace is really a hard thing to grasp. I'm sure you've heard of Martin Luther. He was famous for his fight against the the false teaching from the Catholic Church. They taught that we are saved by works. And he lived and he died for the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone, not by works. But sometimes, even though we may believe this, and even though, we, even though we may have the doctrine of justification tattooed on our thighs, we still tend to drift towards salvation by works. We think if we go to church, God will accept us. God will be happy with us. If I give money to the church, God will be happy with us. We tend to, to think that we do God a favor. If we're nice to people, God will be nice to us. And I've always said, the religions of the world can only be divided into two groups. A religion of works and a religion of faith. And the doctrine from the Bible is a doctrine of justification by faith, not by our works. And even though the doctrine is there for us to understand, it's hard for us to, to, to get used to. Where do you go with this? Where have you added these false teachings that you have heard from different places into the, the truth of the Bible? Think about that for the moment, folks. And how is it affecting you? God's grace is a hard thing to grasp, but it is a necessary thing to grasp. You cannot be saved if you think that God is a genie in a bottle that you rub or that you pay money to in order to, to get something from him. God's grace is necessary for you to understand, for you to be a Christian. Have you come to him by faith alone? And lastly, we see here that we need a better judge. We need a better judge. And this is really the same point that we spoke about last week. We need a better judge. And this is the same theme that comes up in the book of Judges. Jephthah was a savior, but he was a broken savior. That's the title of my message. He wasn't the true savior that Israel needed. But he, he really does present us a picture of the, the true and better judge that, that was coming. And like Jephthah, you see, Jesus was also driven out by his brothers. The scriptures tell us he was despised and he was rejected of men. But unlike Jephthah, we didn't have to call him back to come help us. Jesus came running. God so loved the world, he sent his son. He ran back to save us when he could bear our sufferings no longer. And Jephthah started his deliverance with diplomacy, but when that didn't work, he, he was not afraid to fight, killing not only thousands of, of Amorites, but even fellow Israelites as well, and, and even his own daughter. Yet with Jesus, when pleading did not work, Jesus took the war to himself, into himself. When it came to die, it was his life, not ours, that he took. 
I didn't have to offer my life or my, or my daughter's life on the altar to earn his favor, for, the, for, for he had already taken that spot. Jesus didn't take us to the River Jordan and, and threaten to kill us if we, if we didn't say shibboleth right. He took us to the cross and he pronounced shalom over us and salvation for us. And Jephthah believed we could only find favor with God through extreme sacrifices. But Jesus offered favor with God as a gift for us because the price had been paid by God himself in Christ. Jephthah was a savior of Israel with a small s, but he was a broken savior. And so he, like all the, the other judges that we are learning about, they point us to Jesus, the perfect savior who was broken for the broken. And the true biblical message of Christianity is the grace of God is received as a free gift. If you hear nothing else this morning, Please hear this clearly. God's acceptance is given as a gift, not as a reward. Not as a reward for perfect righteousness, not as a response to our sacrifices, but as a gift of righteousness from God. God's righteousness. And all we need to do is humble ourselves before this king of all kings, the perfect, righteous judge, and receive it by faith. Are you willing to do that today? Please pray with me. Father, thank you again for all of the details that you have left in the Bible for us to learn from. And again, Lord, we just see the folly of man even our own foolishness is exposed this morning, thinking that we can live our lives joyfully and peacefully without your truth, without your word affecting our lives and changing us. We think we have all the answers. And we end up just like Jephthah, making terrible decisions that have terrible consequences. Lord, we need you to to help us apply these truths, Father God, today. And Lord, we pray that your spirit would do that amongst us. And those people that are living lies, thinking that they are saved because they're doing you some type of a service, I pray, Lord, that you would speak to their hearts tonight, today. And help them see, Lord, that you are a God who has given us his righteous son. And his son died for our sins. And he rose again to prove that he has power over life and death. And he has conquered the grave and sin itself. Lord, please do your work amongst us for your glory and for our joy. May we become more like Christ. We ask this prayer in Jesus' precious name. Amen.